Monday, Monday afternoon, theologians. Wow, you just told me something I did not know, Rick, about Icelandic volcanoes. Yeah, it's getting pretty scary up there. You know, I was watching some film and there was a, a Coast Guard helicopter that was running the length of the fissure that's now somewhere between four and six kilometers long. And it was like four minutes of just following this fissure that's spewing molten rock. Hard to say how high it is, but I would have to think it would be at least 100 feet in the air, considering they were saying, you know, how many hundreds of cubic meters of lava is coming out of this thing every second. Wow. The earth is opening up. And of course, you're going to have a lot of people who have been looking at end times prophecies. And they're going to say, well, there's wars and rumors of wars, and they're going to be volcanoes and tornadoes and natural disasters and and earthquakes, pestilence, and all the above. And every time we see more and more of that piling up, those people think, okay, well, the clock is ticking. (laughs) Well, whether it's end times or not, it is ticking, and we're one day closer than we were yesterday. Yeah, that's one thing we can always be correct on. We are one day closer. You see that happening and you go, okay, that flow is going to come down and absolutely annihilate a small town at the end of the peninsula there. Even though the little town only accounts for about 1% of the population of Iceland, you know, it's pretty dramatic for those folks. Oh, yeah. They've been evacuated for several weeks because this has been going on for several months and they just didn't know where or when because that fissure actually comes down and bisects the town. So if it continues to open up to the south, then there could be magma coming out right in the town. That's awful. That's not a real uplifting banter topic, but it was just on the news today, and it did make us think, yeah, we need to be prepared for any eventuality, because that's just something that's prudent. We need to be ready for anything, and especially spiritually. So that's our direction that we're taking, because Rick and I have told you before, our fellow theologians, that we don't know all the details, and we can't say with absolute certainty that some of the interpretations that come from very smart people are the one and only interpretation regarding some of these end times people and events. What we do know is Christ is coming back again. We need to be ready. God's going to win in the end, and so we always need to live with urgency and a sense of expectation. That's our bottom line, but we are going to dive into some commentators and what they say about some of these people related to the end times events. Right. And today we're going to look at some folks that we see in Revelation and possibly back into the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But two people that show up only in the Revelation account that I'm aware of, although some people are looking back into history and say, hmm, these guys could be these guys. Uh, and that is the two witnesses. Right. There are two very plausible possibilities for this one. There may be more, but I see two as very plausible. And yet we don't know with absolute certainty. What we do know is that once these things become very clear, people will go, oh, well, of course. It's like some of those things on movies that we would watch. And they give you lots of clues. And then when you finally you get the denouement at the end, and then you see all the pieces fall together and you go, well, why didn't I see that? Of course, that's who it is. So that I suspect it's going to be that way for us one day. Always leaps to mind is Sixth Sense. And you yeah. go, duh. <laughs> Me too. The second time you watch it, you see all those clues and you think, of course. 
Yeah, there you go. So the two witnesses that we're looking at in Revelation will have miraculous powers to accompany their message. We see that in Revelation chapter 11. No one will be able to stop them in their work, we see in Revelation 11.5. At the end of their ministry, when they have said all they need to say, then the beast, whom we've mentioned in a previous episode, will kill them and the wicked world will rejoice. It kind of sounds like a lot of the prophets that were sent to try to warn Israel, and yet the people mistreated and even killed them. And it sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? But anyway, they're going to kill these two witnesses, and then the wicked world will rejoice, allowing the bodies of the fallen prophets to lie in the streets. We see that in verses 7 through 10 of Revelation chapter 11. Three and a half days later, however, God's two witnesses, aha, will be resurrected and in full view of their enemies will ascend to heaven. That also sounds like something that Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection foreshadowed related to this end times event. Now, there are three primary theories about the identity of these two witnesses in Revelation. One theory is that it could be Moses and Elijah. We saw that, I think, even all the way back at the Mount of Transfiguration. Second theory is that it could be Enoch and Elijah. And then the third would be two unknown believers whom God calls to be his witnesses at those specific end times events. We're going to take a look at those possibilities here in a little more detail. So we'll start with Moses and Elijah, which seems like the most commonly thought of as a possibility for the two witnesses. Mm -hmm. This is at least partially due to specific miracles that John in Revelation says the witnesses will perform. And one of those is to turn water into blood. We find that also in Revelation 11, verse 6, which, of course, duplicates the miracle that Moses did with Pharaoh, which we find in Exodus 7. Mm -hmm. And the witnesses also have the power to destroy their enemies with fire. Doesn't that sound like an event out of Elijah's life, which we find in 2 Kings 1? Yep. And something else that gives strength to this view is the fact that Moses and Elijah both appear with Jesus in the transfiguration. Mm -hmm. We find that in Matthew 17. Now, there's also Jewish tradition that expects Moses and Elijah to return based on the prophecy of Elijah's coming, which we find in Malachi 4, and the promise from God to raise up a prophet like Moses, which some Jews believe necessitates Moses' physical return. All those are reasons for us to think, okay, that's uh, plausible, that these very well could be the two witnesses that have been talked about in Revelation. So the second theory, Enoch and Elijah are seen as these possibilities for the two witnesses because of the highly unique circumstances surrounding these two guys' exit from the world. Enoch and Elijah, as far as we know, are the only two individuals whom God has taken directly to heaven without experiencing physical death. We see that in Genesis 5.23 and 2 Kings 2.11. Now, proponents of this view point to Hebrews 9.27, which says that all men are appointed to die once. Now, I have to put a little caveat in there to also say that when we look at the New Testament writings, particularly of Paul to different people, he uses this same basic kind of phrase to say that we're all appointed to die once, which may mean that every one of us are going to die a physical death. And those who are believers in Christ 
will not die a second death because we're going to be living eternally in our glorified state, but that those who are not believers will have a second death. And so we have to put that caveat in there to say some of these proponents to the view that they're only going to die once, and that's why it points to these two guys, that may or may not be the case, depending on what that other uh, phrase means in terms of a physical death. The fact that neither Enoch or Elijah has yet experienced death seems on the surface to qualify them for the job of these two witnesses. And it may be. And these two will be killed when their job is done. And in addition, both Enoch and Elijah were prophets who pronounced God's judgment. So you can see why they would go to this as a possibility, because if they haven't died physically yet, then if they're appointed to die only once, then when they are killed by the evil world, that would be their one time. So I, I get it. And, and that is a possibility. Well, and having that uh, station previously of pronouncing God's judgment seems to fit right in with what they will be saying at the time that they show up in Jerusalem and pronouncing God's judgment on not only the primary characters of this tribulation time, but also the people who are rejecting the message. So right. it seems like a, a significant possibility, and yet there is one other that we see a, a lot of commenters talking about, and that is, we don't know who they are. You know, they're two unknowns that could be the, the two witnesses, because it doesn't specifically say in Revelation 11. You know, the scripture doesn't identify them by name. We don't see a well-known person being associated with their coming. So yeah. God is perfectly capable of taking two, shall we call them, ordinary believers Mm -hmm. and giving them special powers to have those miracles, those signs, those wonders mm -hmm. that we saw from Moses and Elijah. And there is nothing in the Revelation 11 passage that requires us to assume that these two witnesses have ever been famous at all. All very true. So let me do a real quick recap for you. Number one could be Moses and Elijah. There's some good reasons why we might suspect that. Second would be Enoch and Elijah, also very good reasons to suspect that they may be the two. And the third, two unknowns that God raises up for that specific point in history, also a possibility. I think one of the main things we can draw from that is we can understand that many prophetic words, even in the Old Testament, did not become clear until just after the event took place. And so it's okay if we don't know definitively. We shouldn't feel bad that we don't know definitively, but we should keep our eyes open and be expectant. Same thing is true with this whole 144,000, a number which can be viewed very differently depending on which group of people you're talking about. How does one answer that question, who are the 144,000? Well, that depends on which interpretive approach you take with the book of Revelation. The futurist approach, which many commentators agree on, but not all, they interpret the 144,000 very literally. And when you take that at face value, then Revelation 7-4 speaks of this 144,000 actual literal number of people living during the end times tribulation. And one commentator says that nothing in this passage leads to interpreting the 144,000 as anything but a literal number of Jews. 12,000 taken from every tribe of the children of Israel, according to verses 5 through 8. But we have to also balance that by saying there are many others who say that the number 144,000 means perfect and complete. I read a, a book on Daniel and Revelation 
by a pastor named Kent Hughes. He takes this as being numerology, which shows that that means a very perfect and complete number, which is representative of the completeness that God has for that event and does not necessarily have to be taken literally. And one of the things that we know about these 144,000 is that they are sealed. And by that, we mean that they have special protection from God, kind of like the two witnesses who have special protection while they're preaching that nobody can touch them. We know that the 144,000 are also specially protected, and they're kept safe from the divine judgments and the wrath of the Antichrist, so they can freely perform their mission during this tribulation time. Now, it had been previously prophesied that Israel would repent and turn back to God. We see that in Zechariah 12, and also in the New Testament when we see Romans 11, and specifically verses 25 through 27. And it seems to us that the 144,000 Jews are kind of a first fruit of that redeemed Israel. And there's a lot of discussion about what that means. Does that mean this nation of Israel or all the nation of Israel from time beginning? Mm -hmm. And again, there's a lot of disagreement on what that means in the common, uh, commentaries. This special mission seems to be to evangelize a post-rapture world and to proclaim the gospel during the tribulation period. And if you go way back, we find that the original purpose for the Jews was to proclaim God's message of salvation, which they turned away from, which is why when we get into the New Testament, it is the Gentiles who are evangelizing the world, not the Jews, which was the original intent. So we often see God turning back the pages and bringing it to fruition at a later time. So right. as a result of the ministry, we see that millions or a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That to me says from every nation of the world, right. we're going to see people coming to Christ because of the mission and the evangelism of this 144,000 Jews returning to their original purpose. That's encouraging. It certainly is. Because in the midst of a lot of really awful things, it's good for us to see that there will still be people turning to Christ, even though the world seems to be just falling apart all around them. That's an encouraging thing. Seems to be one of those great contrasts, because there are those who are going to be following the Antichrist and those who will be turning to the, the real Christ. And there's a, a big contrast there. And it's going to be really, really difficult during that tribulation period for those who turn to Christ, because mm -hmm. they won't be taking the mark of the beast. And so they're going to be left out of commerce. They're going to be ostracized. And yet in the end end times, they will be taken to the new heaven and new earth, whereas the other will not. Right. And those are really showing the kind of courage that we saw even way back when, when Rome was persecuting people from the way. And so, yeah, it's going to be bad for a lot. So those who really turn to Christ, they'll mean it. That's going to be a, a witness and a testimony to say, I'm literally willing to live and die for Christ, no matter how bad it gets for me. I don't care. And we think that a lot of them will die at that point because they will be in a complete contrary mindset to that of the world, which is following the Antichrist and the false prophet and the new world religion and all of those things that yeah. will be set in place during those, uh, those difficult years. I might put a little quick parenthetical statement in here before we move on to the nations of Gog and Magog. 
discussion, one theory at least, that when Joey and I were in Israel just a few years ago, our guide, Irit, had been raised as a Jew. She married a Jewish man. That was her culture. And she had been taught all the years that she was growing up that if she ever went into a Christian church, God would kill her because it was really an antichrist kind of attitude that she grew up with. And when things fell apart in her life and her husband divorced her and then she got cancer, she didn't have anything to live for. So she thought, okay, I'm just going to go in and walk into a Christian church. The worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to get killed and I don't want to be on this planet anyway. And she did, and she stood there and nothing happened. And then she heard the gospel and she placed her faith in Christ. Incredible testimony. But what she discovered is that there are a number of people in these Messianic Jewish congregations in Israel, and they're all fairly small, but they're mighty, they're strong. And from America, more and more people are sending people to Israel to join with these people. And there seems to be a growing movement of people who are there that could be a part of this last group of people who would really evangelize, even though things get really tough at the end. We don't know specifically, but it was encouraging for me to see that even though things could be very tough for folks, people are still turning to Christ. All right, let's look at this nations of Gog and Magog, one theory anyway. This is one of those areas where there are a lot of different interpretations and uh, unfortunately very little agreement, but we want to at least mention them so that you'll have them on your radar. And if somebody starts coming at you knowing that they have spent some special time in the scriptures and the Holy Spirit has revealed to them all the individual tiny little jots and tittles, and they've checked all the boxes so they know the one and only true way, don't believe them. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody claims that they know every little bit, every detail about these end times events, there's something going on there that's not healthy. And so we don't know for sure, but we need to be aware so that when things transpire, these things will be in our minds. Okay, several commentators believe that the book of Revelation uses Ezekiel's prophecy back in the Old Testament about Magog to portray the final end times attack on the nation of Israel, which we see in Revelation 28-9. Now, the result of this battle, according to these commentators, is that all are destroyed and Satan will find his final place in the lake of fire, Revelation 20-10. It is important to recognize that Gog and Magog, the one mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, is quite different from the one we see in Revelation 20, 7 and 8. And Rick's going to start taking us through some of the more obvious reasons why these refer to different peoples and different battles, so say many commentators. And we see in those two chapters in Ezekiel that the armies that are attacking are primarily from the north and only involve a few nations. If we want to look at specific verses, we've got um, 38, 6, and 15, and then we move into chapter 39 and verse 2. But in the battle that we see in Revelation 20 will involve all of the nations. So the armies will come from a variety of directions, not just from the north. Now, there are many, and we've heard these for, for several years, would say that the primary nations that we might identify as Gog and Magog are Russia and Iran. And it, you know, it might be convenient because those two nations are, are quite powerful in their regions, and they do have a special hatred for the nation of Israel. So it would seem to make sense 
that those might be the two primary nations that are coordinating or gathering the very large army that will be attacking uh, Israel, as we see in the book of Revelation. And we'll also notice that there is no mention of Satan in the context of the Ezekiel passage, the Old Testament, Ezekiel 38 and 39. In Revelation 27, the context clearly places the battle at the end of the millennium with Satan as the primary character. So if we get back to the second half of the Ezekiel passage, we see that the dead will be buried for seven months. So there would be no need to bury the dead if the battle in Ezekiel is the one described in Revelation. For immediately following the Revelation passage in chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment. And then the present heaven and earth are destroyed and replaced by the new heaven and earth that we find in the first verse of chapter 21. There obviously would be a need to bury the dead if the battle takes place before or in the early part of the tribulation. That's one of those things that you mentioned. Commenters have been battling for 100 years. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, the land of Israel would be occupied for another thousand years, the length of a millennial kingdom. Although we've talked about that in some detail in earlier episodes, that it may be a literal thousand years, or it could just mean a very long time. Right. And it's okay. God can choose to do it however he chooses to do that. And he will. And he will. We'll look at it and go, of course. (laughs) This makes perfect sense to me now. Yeah. So it's causing us to be in relationship and to continue to trust him, knowing that all these things in their apocalyptic verbiage may, in fact, become much more clear after the fact than they are right now. Okay, then we also see the battle in Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. That battle is used by God to bring Israel back to him. And in Revelation 20, Israel has been faithful to God for a thousand years. So you can see the differences there. Those in Revelation 20, 7 through 10, who are rebellious are destroyed. And so they'll have no more opportunity for repentance at that point. There will come a time for all of us. And this is one thing we can draw from that as an application. There will come a time when every single one of us will be done. These bodies of ours will wear out on earth. And once that happens, there won't be any more opportunities for us to make a different choice about how we respond to God and his invitation to place our faith in Christ. That's why Rick and I continue to make an urgent appeal every time we get together for you to make today the day of salvation if you haven't already placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that from the very beginning, the whole process that we see throughout the biblical account from way back in the garden where there was the original sin, Mm -hmm. that God has been trying to draw his people back to him, sometimes as a nation, as we've seen in Israel when they've strayed. But specifically, when we get to the New Testament, it becomes very, very personal. Mm -hmm. And even after we move into the tribulation period, God's strongest desire is to bring his children back to him. That's why we see evangelism at that point. That's why before then, we and so many thousands and millions of others look to that urgency to say, Mm -hmm. today is the day. You need to make a decision because we look forward to that tribulation time and it is going to be awful. So the best course of action is to Make a decision now to turn from your sin, to allow the shed blood of Christ to wash away all of that iniquity and enter into a relationship with God that you've never had before. 
And it's really a simple process. And all we need to do is to make that desire known to him. And we do that through prayer. And Clark is going to model that prayer. And I think also we should probably model another prayer for those who may have been stepping away from their uh, original relationship, but want to come back to it now so that they can be a part of the good things that are happening between now and all the horrible things that we see at the end of Revelation. Very good. I will do that. I'll model a prayer that you could pray, and it could go something just as simple as this. Dear God, I do recognize that you're trying to spare me from pain because you love me that much. That's why you sent your son Jesus to atone for my sins, to take my place on a cross, to cover me with his blood, and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You did that because you're that kind of a loving God. And I'm so sorry that I've thought of you as a tyrant at times, or that I may have thought of you as someone who condoned things that were awful in the Old Testament. But the more I know about you and the more I see about you and your character, the more I can see that you're constantly doing things very patiently to draw people back to yourself. You want us to come close to you, just like Jesus said to Jerusalem, oh, how often I have wished that I could just gather you under my wings like a mother hen does to her chicks. That's the kind of love you have for us. And so I want to place my faith in you. And I want to trust you with my life to get to know you better by reading and studying your word, by being with fellow believers who are on that same path so that they can help me and we can help each other along because we're all just helping each other home ultimately if we're believers in Christ because we all will be home one day in eternity forever with our glorified bodies that won't wear out and then we'll be in your presence and in the new heaven and the new earth forever. That's what I want. And so I place my faith in you right now Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your love. Thank you for pouring your Holy Spirit into my heart and mind to help propel me along this journey and to transform me along the way so I can be more and more like Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Perhaps we should model that prayer for those who want to live in a state of urgency that we've been encouraging for several weeks now. Indeed. I will do that. And this is one that Rick and I have mentioned before, we pray these kinds of prayers because we need those recommitment prayers often because it's so easy for us to get caught up in the busyness and the day-to-day -day stuff and problem solving. And we want to be reminded that we want to live urgently for the Lord. And we could say something like this, God, it is good to be reminded that things can happen just in the snap of a finger that would change our lives and the lives around us forever whether it be living in a place where there's a natural disaster or a physical, physiological change in us with health or an accident or something that would take place that could just change the trajectory of our lives instantly. And so we want to live urgently and expectantly, not in fear, but expecting you to continue to draw more people to yourself. And we want to be a part of that. We want to live with the expectancy in our own lives so that people can see the hope we have in Christ. And when they ask us about that hope, we'll have a ready answer. So help us to live in such a way that people can clearly see that we're living for you. And then we want them to see Christ in us and be drawn to the Christ in us, not because of us or the good things we're doing or our great personalities or whatever that might be. We want them to see Christ in us because we want them to be drawn to Christ. And then we can tell them the difference in my life is Jesus Christ. 
That's what has made such a big change. He has made the change in my life because I'm living for him for the rest of this life on earth and on into eternity. May we live with expectancy and hope, and may we live with urgency, boldly sharing our faith every chance we get, because you've loved us that much, and we want to love others the way you loved us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Interesting study, this. And we just touched the surface. I mean, as we mentioned, there are many commentaries that uh, take different approaches to each of those subjects. And... Uh, could be well worth exploring if you have more interest in those very end times. And I think our, our one big warning is don't get so wrapped up into it that you're trying to check all the boxes so that you can be right. Because if we're trying to prove that our doctrine is correct, we may actually be giving into a temptation of Satan that our pride will get in the way and we'll keep people from finding a relationship with Christ because it's not about correct doctrine. Yes, we want good doctrine, but it's not about our having all the boxes checked. It's about our living with urgency in a relationship with Christ, and we have to trust him every day, knowing that we don't know every detail. Because if we knew every detail, we would be him, and we wouldn't need him. So let's live in relationship with Christ, knowing that whatever we learn about this, it's helping us to develop a sense of urgency about the end, which could be near, but knowing that we don't know everything, that's a good thing for us to remember as we walk in relationship with Jesus. Which is our goal every day. That's right. And we hope you will join us on this journey as we continue to look at different things in the Bible that are sometimes a little confusing, but always interesting. And we hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.